So we're gonna go ahead and get going. We just finished up the first day at DNSA at the farm. How do you think it went? I think really good. Really? Yes. I'm surprised. I mean, I don't feel like... I mean, I don't think the students were very good, but I yeah. thought the instructor dominated. It <laughs> was riveting and yeah, yeah it, was, it was good. Um, so yeah, joining me is Daniel. Hey guys. And Monica. I thought, I thought she was just going to turn red and we'd have to like make a noise for when Monica talks. So it's just like, yeah, some standardization. So I just want to kind of do a few questions. We originally were going to do a week interview, which is our case study show. And I was going to try to get a DNS centric case. But technically, after everybody listening to you today, I think every case would be a DNS centric case in your scenario, correct? Could be. I mean, because you're looking at every patient through the lens of DNS. Even if you're not using DNS today with a patient, your overall perspective uh, is always going to be, I think, through the lens of meaning like if somebody comes in with a low back disc herniation, we may have them in an MDT protocol right now today, but I'm looking at their inability to stabilize their body in the right way, knowing that I'm going to get to that eventually. So yeah, so I think every case you're kind of, even though you may not be using DNS principles always, you're always looking at it through the lens of DNS. So you t touched on it quite a bit and I know it's going to vary per person because every exam is guided by obviously the person, what's happening, the history, but can you walk us through your exam process just kind of like linearly, like mm -hmm. how you would actually go about it if somebody walks into the office? So probably the, one of the first things I want to know is why are you here to see me today? Like what, what is it you're, you're not able to do right now that you're wanting to get back to? Um, cause that's like an important thing, especially like in a difficult, like chronic pain case, I got to have like something functional to come back to. So once I've established that, I think initially too, like for them to have buy-in what I'm doing, I have to establish immediate rapport with them. And we are, we're actually just kind of talking about this about mm -hmm. like me being able to kind of walk in there and be able to match their level of intensity. So, um, I, I'm a high energy person myself, but like I need to if somebody's kind of lower toned and you know maybe they're depressed or maybe you know something's difficult going in their life they probably don't want me just walking and saying everything in my life is wonderful how are you doing it you know like so i think it's good to like um meet them where they're at just from like an initial rapport standpoint i mean the old saying like a person determines whether or not they like you in the first like 30 seconds is probably it's probably pretty accurate um so then at that point, then when we start the assessment, I think, uh, I guess being a chiropractor, I, I spring joints. So I want to find like main areas in their body that aren't moving well and what planes of motion that are not moving well. I want to know um, from a movement standpoint, do they have a directional preference for their complaint? Meaning not just in the spine, but maybe it's a, maybe it's a lateral condylitis case. If I in range extend their elbow 50 times, do I change their pain? You know, like so... I'm trying to find and search out uh, whether or not they have a derangement or a directional preference, no matter what joint it is in the body. Um, then at that point, um, if a neuro exam is warranted, then I'll do, I may not do a full thing, but I'll do like an abbreviated version if, it, if it's warranted. And then I'm looking, you know, then we're putting our DNS hat on to see like how well they're able to stabilize their body. And then uh, as I'm joint playing the joints, I'm usually going through their body just like seeing you know, whether or not the joints are blocked, but also like the quality of movement, is there soft tissue restriction? Um, Dr. Levitt used to say one of your main goals is to remove tension out of the system. So um, like one of my interns is here, Kyle, like he can attest to this. Like sometimes like I'll, if the patient's sideline, I might walk their leg up from a sideline position and I'm just kind of seeing to where like, where there might be tension that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that I might use neurodynamics, I might not. So, Which saying that the goal of treatment from uh, Dr. Levitt would be to remove tension could seem counterintuitive. You're saying that a big kind of lens that you perceive it through is DNS, which is based on stability, right? Because mm -hmm. a lot of people would think like bracing, high threshold strategy, but that's, which, you know, I mean, you could get into the whole McGill debate if that's truly what's happening, which I don't think it is. But you said that like every little piece is guided um, you said this actually, I feel like we're on like a, a talk show where you're like a repeated guest, like you're Steve Irwin with the animals. Like you just show up <laughs> every right. once in a while. He's dead now. <laughs> um, but, um, you said this on the last show that 
the fact that you're a chiropractor allows you to know by the time that you're done assessing the joints what needs interange load or what needs adjusted mm -hmm. what soft tissue needs work so like the assessment is being done while treatment's being applied right what to this day i'm sure your exam looks very different from like when you were a student versus now what would you suggest a student do different than you right now like if I you had to pick you, one or two specifics. I would say one thing I would highly recommend, which is I do, is I have a routine. And because of my obsessive compulsiveness, I keep everything like divided mm -hmm. out and clean. So like when I go to look at the joints, I look at the joints. When I go to look at the soft tissues, I look at the joints. When I go to do soft tissue trigger point assessment, like in my mind at least, that all has got to be separated. So... And then I think you just, in the beginning, you have got to have a routine that you do the same way over and over and over again. That way you're able to start to create patterns and- um, It's habituation, that's how you form a habit. Yeah. Right, and like Bobby Fisher said, when they asked him, they're like, you know, how, how are you able to do this? He said, I'm building memory traces is the exact term he said. But he went on to say that it's basically pattern recognition, which I think is like, as physicians, that's what we're doing all day long is, we walk into a treatment room, our brain thinks, have I seen this before? Have I felt this before? And then you try to recall, okay, I did this and it was successful, or um, I did this the last time and actually didn't get the exact outcome I wanted. And this is not always with the treatment, this also can be my verbiage. So like a lot of times now, it's like I'm learning exactly what I need to say to somebody to get the change that I need. That could be dietary changes, that could be um, but I think like I, I'm learning as I'm going along, like how to read the person and know what to say to them to get, I, I, it's probably not appropriate, but I call it kind of like your kill rate. Your kill rate means like when I first got into practice, I would go into a chamber event and people thought I was a nice guy, things like that. But that doesn't necessarily Man, mean that wrong. it translated <laughs> yeah, exactly, into a new patient. Kill rate means you go to chamber and there's 50 people there and I've walked around and without being cheesy, but people are, you know, if we talk about their low back, they're like, okay, well, I'll see you tomorrow, whatever. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a kid. That means like you've talked about it and they know to come see you versus you kind of talked about it and they never came and said, yeah. So like, yeah, that's, you want to be, I guess a closer is a better, more appropriate term. <laughs> um, so you said it's about pattern recognition and eventually we talked about this today that you get, you kind of earn the right to skip steps, but even when you are skipping steps, how do you keep away from confirming biases? Like how right. do you keep yourself in check with that stuff? Um, I, for me at least, it's cause I, cause I'm what I do. I'm, I'm always around other people to hold that, you know, whether you're teaching on a weekend, maybe you're seeing the same patient in one of these super conferences. Um, I, I would say myself, I am my, my hardest critic. Like no one is harder. Like I will tell you my successes, but I will tell you also like where I've not done well. Like we have uh, intern meetings where, I mean, we have our interns present on stuff and it like they're, you know, at the end of their chiropractic education and like, they'll like shift my thinking on something because I'll be like, okay, I want you to present on this. And I might not do it exactly the way they presented it, but it like makes me think about something. So I'm, I'm never like stuck on any uh, one thing for sure. I'm open for uh, change for sure. In the, uh, oh, go ahead. Um, I think too, like with patient care, it's kind of hard to ever be uh, cocky or anything like that just because like you are gonna get your teeth kicked mm -hmm. in every day. Like it doesn't matter how good you are. Like you're gonna run up into a patient today that you're not gonna be able to help. So then um, I guess now at this point in my life, it's about like, admitting to myself, I'm not gonna be able to help this patient, but like maybe doing a better job of like finding their next steps for them. Like that way they get the treatment that they need, putting my ego aside and like really kind of like meeting, you know, people for, for what I'm trying to do, which is like make their condition better, their life better. So sometimes that's, that's gonna have nothing to do with me. That might be a referral to our functional medicine person that can like coach them through that. So I, I would just say, um, maybe just a school of hard knocks on that of mm -hmm. like, and then the other thing too, like I'm purposely doing different things with patients with similar conditions, just so I can kind of see as I'm learning, like how this patient comes back to me, you know? And so I'm always like, hate to say it, that my patients don't want to hear it, but I'm playing and tinkering a little bit just to see like, you know, what, what's more effective. And But you also have earned that, right? It, that's hard to do if you don't know Hey, I have five options that could work. Right. And I'm pretty confident all of them are going to work. There may be a really strong option that I'm super comfortable with, but I'm actually going to choose 
C and D because I don't know for sure, but I need to start sussing these out, which we kind of talked about. We were talking about the personality aspect, right? Like the therapeutic partnership itself, creating a different outcome and trying to like hedge that off. So right. Or I'm, like if, if the patient comes back to me and let's just say they're worse and I do, if I'm honest with myself, I feel like I made them a little bit worse. I usually at this point, I feel like my approach was right. I got the dosage wrong. Like I don't like automatically think, oh God, I've like, I'm totally on the wrong track here. Now that I've like done this long enough, I think like I overdid it the first time probably, or maybe I, I didn't do it enough, What depending on it. Like I, I feel like at this point, I kind of know what needs to happen in most cases. I just got to get the dosage right to, you know, like somebody might have a stiff CT junction. I can't just go for broke on the first, like I gotta like be patient with it, you know, and that, that's what's hard as a student. As a student, what you end up doing, you end up doing all your techniques, you know, in the beginning and when the patient comes back, you question everything because they're not a better. And as you move along, you kind of understand like to change function takes a little bit of time. So then what I've gotten better at is verbally to say to the patient like, okay, you're a little bit sore today. Like, Maybe that's on me. Maybe that's on you. Who the hell knows? But like, I know long term, like I'm. This is gonna head in the right direction, and I know I'm gonna be able to get you better. I mean, so, and that confidence and certainty um, is so important. Never cockiness. Like, mm -hmm. if any one of my patients ever said, "God, Brett is so cocky," like that would be so offensive to me because like that is not what you want to portray. But you do need to be uh, certain. Like that's. Mm -hmm. But you got to earn your right to be certain. Or like we said last night as a student, yeah. like sometimes you literally got to fake it in the beginning. Like, because part of healing is, uh, so if you look at orthopedic surgeons, they, part of their uh, MO or mojo is that they look at an MRI, you have a torn meniscus, they walk in the room and they say, you have a torn meniscus, your options are surgery, 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 we're doing surgery tomorrow. As a patient, you're like, okay, where do I sign up for surgery? Mm -hmm. Chiropractors walk in and they do their exam and they hem-haw. Like they're, well, uh, I think I might be able to help you. Um, uh, I, I think if we do a couple visits and we'll kind of see how we're doing and like, there's just no certain, you got to walk in there and you got to just like literally own the situation. Well, especially the way we practice because we don't peg everything on imaging unless we absolutely need it, right? right. It's necess necessary for either referral or intervention change, but also we don't want to catastrophize. So we don't want to hook people on yeah, the pathology. Right, so no, we're trying right. to, we're trying to have that conversation, which can seem like you're hemming and hawing, but you're also saying you may have a labrum derangement, but again, that could be a pain generator, but that does not mean that that thing is like going to become pathologized more by doing X, Y, Z, right? We're going to work around that through a trial of care. So that can seem wishy-washy in itself, but if you're confident, I know it sounds weird, confident in the uncertainty of the human body. And that's what I always try to tell patients, like talk to the best neurologists in the world. We understand this much, right? Like right. talk to the best orthopedic surgeons, they're specialists in this, and they're still like, we don't even know what we're doing with like the rest of these things within just the hip. But then when you get somebody who's like, we got you, dude, we're going to, this supplement, these, like, we got you for like the next year. Like, what the hell are you talking about? The most complex organism the world's ever known. And you're just like, I got you, you know, it gets super dangerous. But how would you say, like, we're telling students to have not false confidence, but like, what would you suggest by saying you just got to have certainty? Like, how do they go about that? Like, um, what would you, they can't just walk in the room and be like, yep, lumbar disc derangement. We're going to do press-ups. And then somebody comes back and like, Well, I mean, I think worse. one of the problems with that is the lost art of the apprenticeship. Like, their generation, like, they all want to walk out, make six figures, have the world open up to them. And, like, I guess when I was their age, I would, like... I would have done it for free. I would hung out with somebody just to get better at my craft. After that way, you like off your covered wagon with horses. And <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, there was no computers, <laughs> and you know, it was, it was. Uh, so it wasn't that bad. But my point is, like, I feel like now everybody's looking for, and I mean, technology does this. Like, you're you're so used to like a quick fix, instant gratification, that like you forget that hey, I might want to just hang out for this person for a little bit. That way, I can understand this craft a little bit better. And then that might allow you to treat a patient better and have the certainty and confidence because you watch that person do it. The world is in our in our world at least is short of like really good mentors. Mm -hmm. So like 
you know, like at a chiropractic college, for example, you got to have somebody there that like all the students look up to and like, just as like, this person is like getting amazing results. That way you can kind of see it in your own mind. Okay. This is what this will look like. If you never have that presented to you, you're just basically lost. I mean, so that's, uh, I think like the, the system, unfortunately, is kind of set up to where, um, they don't always have that great experience at, at whatever the college might be. And because of that, then they're, uh, you know, they, they don't see what's possible, you mm-hmm. know. Well, you've definitely been a mentor for me in that aspect. But I can remember, not that we got the exact conversation we're having now, but when we first got into practice, it was just Sloan and I on our own. And when you're on an island where we're at, on your own, you have nobody to kind of reference to that is at a mentorship level on a daily. Oh, I know. You very quickly realize, like, you are faking it. Like, you have to, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, like, no, that I sounds it, terrible. Yeah. But you have to walk into the room now, this is what gets built out of that. The fact that you will fake it and you do mess up a little bit, but like you're good enough to not mess up royally ever, right? It's, or you like get you're a little good worse. enough not to do it twice. Right. You know, and, and you're mess like fast. my biggest F ups in practice, the patient doesn't even know that I right. have to. I, I mean, I got a crazy story for Pierre. Is Kyle still here? Okay, so. A month ago, I have a patient that I'm doing something and I'm wanting to bring her back, so I'm wanting to do flexion distraction. My other intern was behind me, so I'm blaming on him. But anyways, this is my fault. <laughs> anyways, the lady falls. So she falls, catches herself, hits her head, we think breaks a rib. And like I am like I, like stuff like that drives me crazy. Cause yeah. just cause like I just feel like that's just you know like avoided. Yeah. I've never broken a rib in yeah. 20 years of practice with manipulation and this old buzzard falls and she, <laughs> you know, breaks a rib. And, uh, and I'm just like, it's such a humanitarian. Like, I mean, did the thought that somebody came to my office and then, uh, but then like he'll tell you, so I mean, this lady broken rib, I think she says no. I expose myself to all the ripple effect of what is going to happen. So anyways, I'm nervous because she didn't really have a good explanation of why she fell. She's 88 years old. Mm -hmm. So I need her to go to her medical doctor. I need to now sit with the fact that she's going to tell her medical doctor whatever (laughs) she's going to tell her. So anyways, I'm talking to the medical doctor. And uh, and then this lady is like, because I've educated her well, she should not be in my office for six weeks because she's coming back from a broken rib basically. Mm -hmm. But she's wanting to be in the office. She's like, we got to get, my knees are doing so much, but you know, like, I'm just like, oh my God, I just, (laughs) you just fell in my office. You could probably own this place if you wanted to. And, uh, you know, but I mean like, it's like stuff like that, that uh, just, you know, I, I constantly am really, really hard on myself to, or like these little micro mistakes. So micro mistakes are like, you did something, the intervention wasn't great. They come back, they're a little bit worse. We've all been there. I mean, like you adjust something that they never had adjusted and this is now, now you've created a little bit of a new problem. It's not really a problem, but Mm -hmm. so being able to own up, never hide from, and Kyle, he knows too. I talk about it at our doctors and staff meetings. The cases that I know that are, they're either doing something else, maybe they had surgery, I'm not helping them. Mm-hmm. I actually call them three months later and I talk to them. And the reason is, is I want to sit with that failure. Like I want to like feel how much that sucks. And like, but then I feel like then I kind of learn like, okay, like they did do this. And once I put my ego aside, I'm like, okay, the, you know, mm-hmm. like I can make a better decision next time. Um, and I think that suited me well, just always like confronting, never hiding, never explaining away. If I, if I feel like I've made a mistake, I own up to it. Um, and I'm just on, you know, I yeah. think, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Cause like, in, I think with as litigious as society is, what people want to do is they want to lie. They want to make excuses. Mm-hmm. They want to like explain it away to something else. And I've just knock on wood, I haven't been sued yet, but like, I try to just own my own up to, mm-hmm. you know, so, and then like, also like, just kind of like pay attention during the day, like with what you're doing, like instead of mindlessly walking in the treatment room, like making yourself be a little bit better as you're moving through your day. And I think at the end of the day, then you're going to be, you know, you'll be, you'll be exponentially better than you were when you walked in that mm-hmm. day. And I think that's, that's crucial. When it's kind of opening yourself up to mistakes, like you're kind of opening windows, right? Like you could do, I'm pretty sure with everybody you could do two or three things and be like, I'm going to get them better. But it's literally willing to be like, I'm going to do it a little bit different, right? I'm going to take a different approach 
open a door or maybe it's a little more aggressive, a little less aggressive, right? But we talk a lot in here about confidence intervals and I'll, I'm gonna get your take on this. I say within the first visit, you should have a 95% confidence interval of what's going on. I think so too. And I think too, like it's not cool right now, like in the pain science world to say that we can have a pathoanatomical diagnosis. I disagree a little bit. I, I agree. There's sometimes we don't know what the exact structure is, but I at least seem to be thinking about, you know, what is causing their pain. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be exactly right, but I do think it's a mistake to think that we need to just do away with pathoanatomical mm -hmm. You know, diagnosis. But also, part of that diagnosis is also realizing that there is that possibility that it is pathoanatomical. Right. Like, that that is a thing. Hey, there's other. I always say there's other, always other factors: environment, nutrition, sleep. Like those are factors, but also what's the fastest route to get buy-in through results? Right. And that's our biggest thing. It's not actually, in my opinion, rapport is huge. But if you suck at your job and you have awesome rapport, you're not really going to have a practice for very long. Right. Right. You're going to have a lot of people that like you and they're like, yeah, I'm going to go someplace else. Right. And I mean, that doesn't work. So what is, what's one of the biggest challenges for you right now? Like in general, in practice, whether it's like. I mean, I think like is our, I mean, I literally have 30 people that are in and out of our office in some way, shape or form. So I think like, as I was telling you before we started this, like, uh, management of people and then as a manager of people my I guess a struggle of mine or a challenge would be my job is to get the most out of everybody that I possibly can without driving them crazy so like that's where like to me doctors meetings I meet with the staff all the time and I didn't do that initially but like now it's like you know we're trying to create like a world-class operation here and I need I need everyone here if you're the person who's working the front desk you need to be the best in the world at working the front desk. And then I make them tell me, if you were the best in the world, if being the person at the front desk, what would that look like? Mm -hmm. And in that position, that's gonna be more of like a customer service type, you know, role and things like that. And then, you know, I mean, what I say to motivate them is like, just imagine, I mean, we all have to go to work every day. So let's make it fun and let's do something great. Let's mm -hmm. like collectively all come together. I guess uh, a new challenge for me is, um, not working so much on like individual goals. I feel like I did that a lot in my 20s and 30s. And now that I'm like 40 something, <laughs> I had to think about what I'm actually, I'm 43. So like I'm trying to figure out like where I'm, um, as a group, what can we do? Or like if you're talking about the farm, a hundred years from now, does the farm here in Birmingham, Alabama, have I, have you done what it takes to have that still be here and like be better, honestly? You can bet your bottom dollars, Andrews Institute will still be around 50 years. You know, like, so that's a good example, a local example of, uh, you know, like leaving your mark on, on, on the earth. So I, I would say struggles are now, for me, managing people and integrating all the different components of the practice together. Mm -hmm. Like we have a lot of things going on in our practice and we're really working hard on like, just not having like individual independent contractors. Like we have medical doctors, orthopedic surgeons, things like that. But if they're just renting space from me, that doesn't, who cares? Like mm -hmm. they need to integrate in with the office and that, that, that's tough. When we've talked about that in our meetings that the goal is not that you want to come see me. It's that you want to come to the farm, right? right. You don't want to see Monica. You want to come to the farm because whatever your touch point is, it's the best. Right. right? And that's, that's super hard to do. Like that's really hard to do because a, if you start small, like you started on your own. I mean, yeah. it was you and one other guy, and then it was you for a while. I mean, people get used to the Winchester. I mean, it's called Winchester Spine and Sport. So it's like your show, but then to extract yourself, even though you're still in that environment, it's got to be tough. So what do you what do you think that, like, outside of, like, you guys, I know your tagline on the website and stuff, like, how do you get all those other people to buy in? Like the nurse practitioners, your front right. office staff? Um, I think because the vision of like creating like something that's so freaking amazing and cool. Like, I mean, the example I use is Disney World. Like, if you, you, most of you probably don't have kids, but if you have kids and you go to Disney World, like, you realize in a second, like, if you go to Six Flags, for example, in St. Louis, you'll see Goofy will be out huffing a cigarette in the back and stuff like that. At Disney World, you would never in a million years see a princess out smoking a cigarette in the back. Like you're just not gonna see it because Disney is ran so well. Nor are you gonna find a piece of gum on the ground. Mm -hmm. Like, so, you know, like trying to create 
Disney, like in this setting, like ownership know, of the thing outside of you, and like make it, yeah, just continue to grind on the fact of like making this. Oh, I know what I want to say. Like so, in it'd be kind of cool. Like for people that are my age who are good at what they're doing, they like want to brag about their waiting list, or they want to brag about. Um, it's so hard to see me. We actually work on the opposite. Like we are trying to like break down those barriers, and we we're trying to like. Even my staff knows, like, I have a back door. Like, I have patients coming. Like, I, my answer is always going to be yes. It's never if, – if somebody comes back, like one of my staff members says, hey, can you see so-and-so today? It doesn't matter what I have. The answer is going to be yes. Unless, like, I have, like, a hard – something I got a, uh, a deadline or something Court like that. Cornhole tournament. Yeah. That, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, I'm working on, like, actually, in Western medicine, loves to slam, like, a glass door on the patient mm. – um, the whole functional medicine world is so snooty now. It's so expensive. You can't see anybody. It's a five month waiting. It's like, we've got to break that down. We got to make this easy for people. So that actually leads right into my next question. Good segue, man. Um, so let's call that a trend. What other trends are you seeing within our profession that mm -hmm. either good, bad, and different, like things that I you mean, just I do change? like the one trend I do <clears throat> see is what I said this morning. Like I see the pain science thing kind of like nudging maybe a little bit more than mm -hmm. I would like. I do. That's not a, I want everyone in here to take a course from Annie O'Connor or like your own clinic. I mean, yeah. 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 Or Greg Lehman or some, yeah. you know, like all these are great courses. I just think you got to watch that, you know, you're not left to believe that, um, that the treatment doesn't help. And that, you know, like, I think that's, you know, that's the hard, it's almost like you need to see that course when you graduate from school almost, I mm -hmm. think like in a way, cause that way you, like I had, you know, two years of my life where I literally thought I'd cure cancer with an adjustment, you know, like, so obviously that's not the truth, but I mean, like at least that made me get good at that. He's skill. only saying that for the podcast. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so like, and then like the students I see, I, I definitely see like the, the students are not as good coming out as adjust like the manipulation as I'd like to see them. Um, they, it's not their fault. They know more about a lot of different things like mm -hmm. that. Epstein wrote that book. I think it's called the range or whatever about mm -hmm. like, you know, it's always Being a debate a on like yeah. how deep do you want to go yeah. versus like, you know, knowing a little bit about a bunch of things. And I think, uh, that might be a little bit of a mistake maybe. I think like in your journey as a career too, like you want to like for two years or three years, get good at something that could be joint palpation adjusting, then start adding DNS, add neurodynamics, add mechanics, you know, like, and then just kind of. Mm -hmm. Well, and you told me, I've told a couple of people here today, you told me early on, like I never took DNS until I got out of school. I mean, I was, was around you enough and MPI but you said, just practice what you know, because you need to understand it before you just start stacking stuff on top. Otherwise your integration won't be as good as it should be, which you actually said today. Right. Is the irony that you're in Cairo school and you have to go to a club to learn how to adjust. Like what I see as a trend with students is they feel like they have to have everything done before they get out of school because obviously the economic squeeze comes into play even more when you don't have student loans that are propping mm -hmm. that up but then there's no integration that's occurred in clinical care with these things. And then you've like lost a lot of things. So you have all this, oh, yeah. it's like you're, you're on the Titanic and like, there's no motor and you're just kind of floating and you're just like, hmm, this is yeah, an awesome boat. Don't exactly. know what to do with it. It's like a keeping up with the Joneses. Cause like your buddies are putting pressure on you to like take a seminar or right. whatever. And then I, we call them seminar gypsies. We're like, you're in a different seminar every weekend. And then what ends up happening is sometimes like, you just end up confused at that point. Mm -hmm. And then like, like my interns now is telling me like, what should we do now? Like and we put out like probably this last group we had was one of the best groups we've ever had. And I'm like, okay, at this point you can't learn anymore. Like you just need to go see a thousand patients. Like mm -hmm. at this point, like doing another seminar does you no good at this point. Like you just now need to go integrate this and see where you're at. And then your deficiencies are going to get exposed in the second, you know? And that's, what you said right there is a big deal because like, just like people that get drafted into the NFL, right? You think you're like the best division one outside linebacker, you go to the NFL, you're like, Ooh, I'm just kind of a good outside linebacker. Like, right. Yeah, exactly. You, yeah. you know what I mean? You don't know until you're in that realm. So like you have to get into the, the thick of it. Or you don't know what you're, so like uh, two years ago, my son got diagnosed with type one diabetes. So no one really knows this, but, I would put myself up against anyone in the world holistically about knowledge on type one diabetes because 
-hmm. my son had it and I was forced to like talk to all the top people in the world in this, you know, like how to manage it with very, very little insulin, you know, like how we got to this point, I, you know, all the tests I needed to do to see like what brought this on. And um, so then, you know, you never know when life forces you to be good at in an area that you had no idea that you were going to even go down that, that rabbit hole. I mean, as much as I know about maybe this stuff or manipulation and stuff like that, I mean, for two years, for three hours a day, I was studying type one diabetes, like mm -hmm. to find out like exactly what I need to do to help my son out, you know? But that was also built off the backbone of habits of doing what you've done in your practice, right? Yeah. The fact that you've been able to build a routine where you got up and, you know, read or read journals, put things into practice that weren't always the things you're most comfortable with, sets you up for a scenario when you do have to, you know, put three hours in that you actually, it's not that you just find time, you actually find the will to do it no matter right. what it is. But what I've seen in practice for myself is you'll get comfortable and you'll learn something that is new and it's flashy and it works, but it's also not like a challenge to you at all, right? right. So like it's easy, you're like, oh man, this is working with everybody, but you can get as fooled with that as something that is challenging. Right. And one thing I want to know with you is, is there anything that you think, we, I asked you on this on, on the last podcast too, that's like up-and-coming new interests anything that you would like to integrate into your practice that you're not doing yet whether it's you or people that you think would really improve patient outcomes overall but you're just like i don't know enough about it yet or you know i'm just not at that stage that i can implement it yet i one thing i'm learning a lot is like being around really good medical doctors whether that's internal medicine or um orthopedic doctors like who are like i mean mm -hmm. top 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 like I'm understanding their world a little bit better, which is making it a whole hell of a lot easier for me to like know when to refer and like to understand their side of it. Um, as far as, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess my dream is to have like a completely integrated seamless practice, you know, mm -hmm. like, so, I mean, I got a lot to learn as far as like the management of all that probably mm -hmm. for sure. Um, so that's one of the goals though. Yeah, I think too, I mean, I, you know, the more I age too, the more I understand like the importance of functional medicine, getting treatment and like moving my body in the right way. So, I mean, like maybe continuing like to be able to motivate people better on that idea. Like I have a, a bunch of patients that I have yet to um, get them motivated exactly how I want, you know? So, I mean, that would probably be just to continue to get better at the motivational piece for like these, I mean, Americans as a whole, I think we're, it's getting exposed right now, like with the, with COVID is that, mm -hmm. I mean, it is, it is just ravaging the American population because we were not healthy people, you yeah. know, and because of that, it's like, it's all really getting exposed. And, uh, it is interesting. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but like no one's talking about like, okay, moving forward. Like if my approach was, okay, I'm going to get coronavirus. So when I do get it, I need to be ready for it. And this mm -hmm. is what I would do to prepare for that. Instead, it's like, we need to hide ourselves away from it, which I don't know if that makes sense either. Maybe the right answer is somewhere in between. But my point is that like, mm -hmm. uh, right now, I think it's a perfect example. We're not a very healthy group of people. And because of that, it is absolutely ravaging our uh, population right now. Which was the case before and for better or worse, things like this that highlight it may not be the worst thing in the world, right? You hate to see, obviously, death toll and tragedy that occurs and economic fallout, but at the same time, all this stuff existed decade, two, at least two decades before this happened, right? That we were just slowly declining. So, or like, I mean, smallpox literally killed 34% of mm -hmm. the population. I mean, Within like, didn't make get you frame. sick and right. like the symptoms that, you know, like we're dealing with now. Some people do die, but smallpox, I mean, you got it. You, yeah. had, a, you had a one in three chance of literally dying within a couple days. Like, mm -hmm. so you can imagine the stakes of that. Like, I mean, then you're like really in a, not that this isn't a pandemic, but I mean, like that, that, that that's like crazy. That's like one mm -hmm. out of three, you know? So, I mean, that's crazy. But that's no different than if you go to the doctor, you're morbidly obese. They tell you that you go to the doctor, you're morbidly obese right after you had a heart attack. And they're like, you're going to die if you don't change stuff. That's when action occurs. Just like you said, you could be the best physician in the world. If you can't motivate your, your patient to do what you need them to do, it doesn't matter. Right. So we're still talking about the same thing there. Like you have to inspire action in somebody, regardless of how you educate them, how you treat them, whatever. And that's, I think that's the biggest problem. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of information and not action being distilled from that. So, or like if you, um, 
like in our world, we don't really think about like checking up on healthy people in the musculoskeletal world. Mm-hmm. Let me just give you an example. So if you, um, God forbid, if you were going to die of a heart attack tomorrow on Saturday, do you think that there would be signs on blood work and other, you know, other examination stuff that we might do that would show what's about to happen tomorrow? Of course, the answer is yes. So in our world of musculoskeletal medicine, a lot of us are just waiting for the patient to hurt, which if you think about it's a little bit insane. And it, it was interesting here in, uh, I heard Shirley Sarman on a podcast this year, who's uh, kind of an icon of physical therapy at WashU in St. Louis. And I mean, it was kind of, it was crazy to hear, um, but she basically said, and she believed that, you know, you should be checking up with your patients twice a year from a musculoskeletal standpoint, mm-hmm. you know? So I think like th- this group of students here, they're because they're good ethical people they're gonna probably under treat their patients quite honestly mm-hmm. so and i think if you under treat your patients you you might not be changing function as ironic as that might be you know like you can change anyone's pain here in a second just by sticking a needle in it or you know rubbing on it and you, know, you can get the patient to say they're feeling better but can you actually change the the actual function of their body in a visit or two i i don't think that's possible so then in saying that, like, how do you capture that without getting lumped into the chiropractor who's keep coming you back and stuff, overtreating, right? So that's like a, that's a dilemma. I know like everyone in our office, we walk that fine line and mm-hmm. being sure like you don't get lumped into that, but I can't be successful if I don't see you. Well, you that's know? great Cook's whole conversation, right? That we need check-ins, but we need to have some sort of baseline to be able to perform that check-in and that baseline's still the thing that's debated, right? Like that's, we talked about that today, like, Hey, we, we think these things should be occurring in a normal human, but then, you know, that's, that's the debate and that's really tough because their movement is a, I mean, everything's movement, speech is movement, right? Movement itself, breathing, all that stuff. So then when we say that, like conservative musculoskeletal care, it captures a ton of stuff. It's not like you go to a pulmonologist and do a, you know, two or three tests and they determine, oh, you have COPD or you have asthma. Like it's a huge scope. So then to say, hey, we're going to check in on you. Like, how do you do that again? And that gets into like, I'm going to treat this guy with this technique and this woman with this technique. It's the same thing. Like, where's the baseline line? Who comes up with that? Who deems that necessary? And then who sells that to the public? I mean, that's a, that's probably the question. Right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I don't go to the person who cuts my hair, which checks my office manager, but and say, hey, I want you to cut my hair today. And then I want you to teach me how to do it. And then for the rest of my life, I just want to do it myself. Yeah. No, you, I mean, every three weeks, I'm going to go get my hair, you know, because like some services just, you they, you can't provide it on your own. You just, Why you don't know. you just give them the chiropractic spin? You can't see your back, so you got to come see me, right? You can't see the back of your head. Come on. <laughs> Let's end on a little bit lighter note. Um, that got dark. <laughs> um, we talked a little bit last night. You said, yeah, you're coming up on uh, some birthdays here. And you talked about goal setting. Mm-hmm. And you said every five years you have goals. And you talked about hitting most of the goals, coming up on another mm-hmm. milestone. I just want to know if you can get specific on what that process is. Like, how do you go about setting goals? Like, do you literally sit down and write them? Like, how do you do it? Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I basically kind of know, like, so the next, um, like the next five years of my life is definitely going to be like in like education. I told you about the writing, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're talking about a new MPI book, things like that, but also like just hopefully like making some time to just like get some stuff down. I felt like if I use baseball as an example, I felt like I'm, I'm so tired of baseball right now, but like, I feel like there's so much that I could probably like contribute that I just haven't like got anywhere. So like that's, uh, I feel the need to, to do that. Um, I think one thing I've learned through this past year is how much I love treating patients. I told you that last night, like Mm -hmm. that's like most people hate it. Who've been at it as long as I have and who also teach on weekends and stuff. I actually still like, I mean, give me a day off, give me a day. I mean, I, I love treating patients. I still love that aspect of it. But I guess I don't like probably sit down kind of like with a book like this, like Taylor Primer does my <laughs> associated, like actually like map out exactly the goals. I just kind of have like a mindset. I figure no one has done anything real great beyond the age of 70. I mean, like you're still, li- I, hopefully I live to be a hundred. I mean, that's one of my goals, but like at that point I'm hanging out with my family, I'm doing my hobbies. I'm hopefully I'm in Phoenix chilling, you know, like, mm-hmm. but like it, 
there's exceptions. Like Mary Kay is a great example. Like she started her company when I think she was 68, and then mm-hmm. it just well, you so, definitely run for U.S. president after that age. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So, anyways, if you do that, then things start to get a little bit tighter. So, if we're saying, okay, no one's done anything real great professionally after the age of 70. I'm 43 right now. Well, all of a sudden that window's a little smaller than it than you think it is, you know. So then, um, I guess just having enough sense of urgency without creating anxiety to like know that I'm in a window right now. I just got a sneaky suspicion that a lot of people are laying in their hospital beds with a lot of regret, saying like, "Man, I wish I would have," you know, because mm-hmm. human nature is you always like your your brain goes to procrastination. So mm-hmm. I mean, like I try to. My problem is I see the world through the prism of perfection in everything. Mm-hmm. So then like because of that, I can procrastinate a little bit because I want to wait till I do it till I can do it perfectly. And I got one of my best friends in Troy, like he's just the doer and I've learned so much from him. Like, dude, just get it going. Just get it. St- it's like that difficult project. You find out like, geez, if I just started, all of a sudden it gets enough momentum and then I can do it, you know? So I, I struggle with personally like... Um, procrastination because of perfectionism because mm-hmm. I want to do it so well and then if I don't do it well then you know you feel that that stress so um we picked the right job to kind of break that mold though I mean never going to get a patient perfect no I know I know but um yeah but I think that more so than any other job I just think like uh what's hard about our job is there's not a scoreboard on the side of the room like <laughs> if you play a game of basketball at the end at the end you know who won or lost like in the world of patient, like, I don't know if, I don't know if Bo Beard's the best in the world at what he's doing. I, you know, cause there's no way to like, exactly. There's no metrics mm-hmm. to see that exactly. So I think kind of what's funny is like, that's what kind of grinds me and pushes me. Um, you know, one, can I get a quick strike in pain? Can I change function? And can I have a minimalist approach? Can I like get a great outcome without like literally throwing everything at the patient, you mm-hmm. know? And then I guess also, you know, being, um, you know, always being there for like students and other chiropractors, like never getting too busy to like, you know, miss out on like all that, that things like, cause I had great mentors who always made time for me. So like being sure that, you know, like I'm uh, as busy as I think that I am or as, you know, as much as I want to leave the office, like taking time and like making sure that, you know, I've done a good job with that. Mm-hmm. So I think you're doing a pretty good job. Yeah. Flew down to I have my head. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you guys have any questions? Anything? Don't give us dead air, man. Fire them at us. So here's a good one. So he says basically, (laughs) (laughs) it's real. I got a great question. It's fantastic. Uh, It's basically on everybody's mind. They they just emailed me. Um, So if you were in my shoes, even Monica's shoes, Taylor's shoes, with you, what are some things you would do on a weekly basis? Like, so if you were in a Brett's office or in a Bo's office and you're seeing patients on checking basis because you're basically i mean like almost everybody in this room like you're both of us two of our hugest mentors ways in which we practice like how would you go about checking in with you on like whether it's a daily a weekly a monthly basis to keep your growth going um yeah i think like with in that scenario i think doctors meetings help that like that's one way like one hour every at eight o'clock every Wednesday morning, we have a doctor's meeting. So like I run it or I have someone else run it. But anyways, it always ends up a lot of times me talking about my experience with a case, which I think that helps the whole, cause I basically know what everyone's struggles are at this point. Like they may not admit it, but I kind of know what they're struggling with or we're in a small town. So I mean, like some of these people are like telling me, oh, I saw so-and-so today and you know, the, so I kind of know in the back of my mind, they don't even know that I know like what we need to work on. I think like one really important thing if you're in uh, our shoes is I have to actually let them make some mistakes. Like I can't like micromanage them. I can't like over teach, over correct. Like so many times, like I'll be in my, and I'll hear them say something so funny or like I know they're heading down the wrong track, but like, you just got to kind of, you know, let it happen. And then that's in his office. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, so I think that that is important from our standpoint, letting you, letting the the associates or whatever, like make some mistakes and kind of learn along the way. And then also I think kind of exposing, um, the old adage of like, 
no one knew. Now it's been exposed with Michael Jordan, but up until the the point when he came out with that documentary, like Michael Jordan purposely did not tell the world what he was doing because he didn't want to expose the playbook of like this is how you become the best in the world at what you're doing. So I think like being honest, like um, you know, this is you know, this is what you got to do every day. Like you got to go meet people in your community. You have to, you know, get up early and maybe read journals and work on the stuff that you're not good at. And I think also like being able to just walk into a treatment room, take, here's the best advice I give you. Take your schedule home for the next day. And then that way, when you see these different cases, you kind of have a plan when you walk in and you also know all scenarios. Like, uh, Michael, Ty- Michael uh, Tyson's trainer, Mike Tyson's trainer, he said, everyone's got a plan until you get hit in the nose and then your plan goes away. So you kind of have a plan with the case until you walk in and they're like, oh my God, I'm doing horrible. And so all of a sudden, like, then you're forced to like think of something on the fly versus like, I think like if you plan for all your cases and I actually still do this to this day, I know every scenario with every case. I know whether or not, like if it's not going well, the next referral I got to make, what I got to give them a pep talk on, like, and people don't realize that because, you know, once you get busy, but like, and I'm paying attention to everything with that patient, like what they say, how they get up, the way they filled out their paperwork, like all that is just more information for me to hopefully make a good decision on their, on their case. So, I mean, I think um, being prepared is, I mean, obviously that always helps. Um, exposing yourself to really difficult situations, owning up to difficult situations, um, I think those would be, you know, things that I like as far as like for you, maybe like public speaking, like go not being afraid to go speak to the Rotary Club, even though nobody wants to do that. But like forcing yourself to do that. I was speaking in my story is interesting because like in high school, I was petrified, petrified of public speaking, like just I mean, just hated it. And then um, and then when I first got out, I was speaking to anybody who would literally listen to me. My most embarrassing story, I did a, a lecture <laughs> at this massage therapist who practiced out of his house. So it was, the topic was on the shoulder and there was two guys and they were both over the age of 80 um, and basically both of them slept through my whole talk in a recliner <laughs> basically. And I'm going through the mechanics of shoulder impingement. Like, I mean, it was pure. And I mean, I remember like coming home to my wife that night, like, Self, what the hell are you doing? I mean, like, has it gotten to this point? I mean, are you that pathetic? But then, I mean, looking back now, I guess I did things that no one else would do. And then it was just, I guess it just makes you kind of practice. And I mean, like, I would recommend being president of Rotary, president of local chambers, all of that stuff, emceeing events, just like getting your, getting experience. And uh, that was probably the stuff that I did that I find that people really struggle with. Taylor's a good example of my associate now of like he's on that track like he's kind of got it figured out of like how you blow up a all my associates are great but like he's got the the community piece down mm-hmm. you know so um, I think that would be what I'd recommend and something I'll chime in with is Brett said you know take your schedule home at the end of the night something that Peter Atia said <clears throat> I don't know this was a couple years ago on his podcast that he had a big shift in his practice when he realized that patient notes weren't for insurance companies. They were for his learning benefit Mm -hmm. that he wasn't supposed to just like drone them out. It was actually a journal that like the more detailed it was, the more he learned and the faster the patient got better because he understood their case instead of just being like, put in what I need to. And then pretty soon, like it's just there. (laughs) We got sound effects going over here. Um, That was the excitement for patient notes. (laughs) Um, uh, but that's something that I know my wife would want to slap me in the face, but like patient notes seem monotonous and like they suck. They do if you think they suck. But yeah, if you, right. you, you got to literally mind up yourself and they do. Yeah, you do. literally think like, oh, this is for me. Like this creates ease and efficiency within care, but also you learn. If you can't go back to a note with a case that failed, like say they come back to you a year later and they're like, for something else, I've had it happen. You should. They came in for a shoulder, they're in there for a knee. How's your shoulder? No, I had it operated on. Don't worry about that. Help me with my knee, which means that A, you didn't do a terrible job because they came back to you, but then you need to look at their shoulder and be like, well, what the hell did I miss, right? And if you had just blase notes with orthopedic tests and range, like that doesn't tell you anything. Uh, so yeah. Uh, Rebecca, our functional medicine person, to this point, and she's the most meticulous doctor ever, but she had one weak moment. This is the funniest story ever. 
So she gets these patients mixed up. So I'm sending her to this guy who's one of my, just a salt of the earth, like crazy awesome dude. And uh, he's got acid reflux, right? So she, this is like the second visit and she gets him mixed up with another guy who she's treating for erectile dysfunction. <laughs> so she walks into my friend, Russell, who's got acid reflux and she literally goes, so Russell, how's your erections? <laughs> and he goes, He's like, damn, Brett wasn't. Brett was right. He's like, you are thorough. He's like, yeah, they're 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 great. And so by they just a together. standard question at Winchester Spinal. <laughs> oh yeah. And then one more story on Rebecca that like was life changing. She was dry needling this lady's coccyx, and to get there, obviously, got to like pull pull things apart. So she's getting there and then this lady passes gas basically as she's dry needling his coccyx. And so this is early on in her career and I'll never forget it. She comes into my office and she she's like, you know, just uh, just beside herself. And she goes, uh, you're not gonna believe this. And I was like, what? And she goes, I just watched a fart. She's like, I know you've heard a fart and you've smelled a fart. She's like, I literally, with my own eyes, just watched a fart happen in real time. And I'm just sitting there like, really? And, I mean, it was just, you know, I mean, the things you encounter in a day, I just think are... Uh, the humility that comes just, from the human Yeah, bodies. oh my God, it's yeah. just yeah. insane. Any other questions after that one? I guess... Full freedom on the question board right <laughs> yeah. now. Everything's open. I want at least one more. Anything? Otherwise, I think I got we got these two and then we'll wrap up. Sure. Okay, so like, you were talking about earlier about, you know, I guess not, because you said you didn't take DNS so you got out of school. Mm -hmm. um, making sure you know you don't get ahead of yourself. And then when I went and shouted at your place, like I talked to Dr. Kramer about it, and he said he did the opposite where he just threw himself into everything. Um, so okay, so it takes like there's Taylor's a special dude, you know. Like some people can like have the bandwidth to take it all in. It's just like overall, um, you know what I'm saying? Like some people can do it, but like if you're at a new seminar every single weekend, sometimes it's it's challenging. He's the exception. I mean, like he had. I mean, I would say he saw more seminars in his time there. And the one thing I learned from my parents too was like education's never a waste of money. The question is though, like uh, because you don't have integration, like are you, it, it's not that it's a waste of time or a waste of money. It's just like how well can you use that information? Students, not students, humans in general right now, it's all about getting like a certification. So like mm -hmm. I, you know, like we, we deal with this in MPI, it's like, okay, we took spine and extremity course. Okay, do we, are we certified now? And we debate that. Like what I would, Corey and I always talk about, like I took 20 MPI spine courses from 20 different people, not 20 different people, 10 different people. So like, you know, I think like now the present day student or human being is like trying to accrue certifications to put on their wall without actually being great at that. Like they're more, they're more worried about putting that thing on their wall than they are at actually understanding the material. Because at the end of the day, like no patient walks into the farm and looks at Bo's perfect certificate wall he's got here and be like, wow, like Bo is really a smart guy. No, they know Bo's good at what he's doing. And that's, you know what I'm saying? So like I would say um, tread lightly, but you can do it. It's just, you know, a matter of like uh, being able to you know, be able to apply it. You know, if you're not, you can have patience right now, then it's tough. And I said he just enjoyed doing it, or he liked it, I guess, for the fact of like, he learned, I guess, so much information until he got kind of like overwhelmed. And then he was like, it forced him to kind of sit down one day and be like, okay, how would I actually go about treating a patient with all the info, like putting it into one place? Well, or like it creates, you see what's out there, which is important for you to keep grinding. You know, like that way, like, for me, it was, uh, you know, I, I had moments of like, you know, seeing different people, but then I saw uh, collage work up a patient, like when I was your age, probably like a student. And I knew right then and there, like, okay, this guy is performing at a completely different level. You know, like, so if I hadn't attended that seminar and saw somebody perform at that level, then I don't really know what I'm shooting for at that point. You know, so like sometimes like, 
you know, the old adage of like, if you picked one or two things up from a seminar, then it's probably worth your money because you're going to think about it. You're going to use that every day for the rest of your career, your, your lifetime. So, and, and Greg Cook talks about this a lot that if you do go to a lot of different seminars, you start to see the overlap. So you actually see that most people are talking about the same thing. It's just from their own lens. Like right. everything is looking like SFMA is a developmental perspective on how they go about rehab, which they largely use Levitt, Voita, all these people. Like it's all the same stuff. It's just different angles, which then allows you to start thinking about how you perceptualize it yourself. And that's kind of what Taylor was saying. I heeded Brett's advice on one big thing. And this is one thing that he's probably said three times, at least during this podcast and 10 times today. He told me that if you're not the best adjuster by the time you get out of school, you're never going to be. So like right. that was my thing. Like you need to be good at that thing like an athlete, right? I'm not going to play all 11 spots on defense. I'm going to be a linebacker and I'm going to be really good at that thing because that's how I'm going to get drafted. But then guess what? From there, if I know how all the other positions play, I'm that much better at defense overall. Well, you can learn that on the fly while people are coming in and getting better with those one or two skills. And then pretty soon I have 50 skills to pull from. And now I'm this commando rather than the specialist. So there's multiple ways to go about it. Just mm -hmm. however you attack it is what your comfort level is. Or like at the end of the day, whether you like it or not, um, you're a chiropractor. <laughs> so like yeah. you can talk pain signs, you can do whatever you want. But at the end of the day, the world perceives you as a chiropractor. So at, at that point, why not be really good at that? And then, oh, by the way, I can do all these other things. You know, back to Lynn Fay's quote of if you give them the best adjustment they've ever had, they will be up for DNS, mm -hmm. they'll be up for neurodynamics, they'll, be ch they'll change their diet for you. But if you can't like do what they came in to see you for, then I think, yeah. yeah, exactly. One more question, then we'll wrap up. Uh, I think the enthusiasm that both of you guys bring to the profession or your office kind of draws many people to bring both of you guys as their mentors or you know, in the case of Dr. Beard in Winchester, that developed that way. What gets you motivated in the morning to come into the office with that enthusiasm? And then I guess what excites you about where the profession's kind of heading with a focus mainly on what could be health in the current state of the nation and kind of what you talked on already, Dr. Beard. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first part of the question is you have to be like really competitive with your results. So there's a humane side of it, which is like you want whoever you're working with to, to get better. But then also there's like this sneaky competitiveness that I think you do have to have to be a great clinician, which is like, it's kind of a game. Like I'm trying to like get this person better that no one else could get better. And you want to feel those pressures, you know? So, I mean, for me, I, I'm very competitive as a human being. So like I always, that's one thing that gets me up and going in the morning. Um, this, what was the second part of the question? So the, what, what could be a new focus on health rather right. than disease? Where do you think that provides opportunity for chiropractic and, and where? I mean, I think it's a huge avenue. I think like one thing that I've learned that's really hard for my students is to be great at everything we're doing this weekend and be great at like functional medicine and things like that. So um, functional medicine's hard because it is literally changing by the minute. Like, you know, new stuff comes out. So. If you're gonna dip your toe in that water, you're probably gonna maybe go all in there, maybe, unless you um, unless you have the time to maybe be able to, to do it. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I tell everyone like at Logan when I was there, it's like, if you wanna do functional medicine, great, because it's like the perfect storm in economics right now where you have huge demand, low supply, which means like, like Rebecca right now at our office, I mean, she's on a three month, she's had a six month wait in this before which tells me like there's that much demand. She's great at what she's doing, but the demand right now is, you know, it's out there. So chiropractors are perfectly suited to uh, tap into that if they want to do that. I just think like in a 15 minute time slot, it's going to be hard to do a great job there and do all the, the manual stuff. But chiropractors as a whole, I would say no one's in a better position to address the healthcare crisis. The United States usually ranks like 38th in the world as far as like, your ability to prevent whatever the disease might be. However, let's just take talk St. Louis for a second. If you were to have a heart attack in St. Louis, no, let's do stroke. Because we have one of the best stroke hospitals in the world, Nepal. So like if you have a stroke, our crisis care is the best. 
Like, so like we're really good in America of like, you're having an emergency, we need to do this. But what we're not good in America is disease prevention. I think they're probably related inversely. So the better your Western medicine, probably the more likely people are to get lazy on the other aspect of it because they're relying too much here. And then the parts of the world that don't have good Western medicine, then they have to be better at lifestyle and things like that. So it all comes down to education, motivation. I'd say um, the famous Spanish philosopher Santiana, he said there's like a gaposis, which is you have patients' intentions or person's intentions and you have what their, their actual change they're going to do. Who in this room right now thought that at some point today they might get a workout in? Okay. Of those same people, hold up your right hand. Okay, so it's going on whatever time it is. So what percent of you are actually going to get your workout in tonight? Hold up your left hand. So you thought you were going to do it, so you're actually going to work out. Did you already do it? Or? Yeah, I did it. You already did it, so you did it. Okay. Okay, so like that's a perfect example. You close that gap. Humans in a functional medicine or a dietary thing, they don't make good changes unless they're in like a crisis situation. Uh, Monica, you pull up with MS today, I guarantee you I can change your, you'll be willing for whatever I got. Okay, but you don't have that diagnosis, can I still make a bunch of changes in your life without you getting diagnosed with that? So that's what we're up against. Like people are used to being able to live like shit. The reason you, you, you pay attention to it is if you wear your seatbelt and you don't smoke, your chances of getting to the age of 60 are pretty good. But the reason you live really well up until that point is to make 60 to 90 really good. And so like people don't, a lot of times they don't like make that correlation, you know? So um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, again, it's, it's all getting a little bit exposed right now with what's going on, I think. So and um, I would agree with Brett on the competitiveness of what like drives motivation, but Obviously, everybody has an individual like take on that. Mine is like humans are the most complex thing the world has ever seen, right? Um, not debatable. Like that's just proven. So then to think that you're going to be a person that's going to manage that seems like a super egotistical thing to take on. But then that's the competitive nature, right? You're like, well, I can do a jigsaw puzzle, no problem. Good luck managing a personality health, understanding all the components, and then having some sort of effect that's actually long standing. So for me, that's the puzzle. It's not, can I get them out of back pain, right? Do I actually have an impact on this person's life? Like I would much rather somebody come in. I had somebody yesterday, like I treated them for what they initially came in for, but they told me, dude, I've stopped having two screwdrivers every night. I, you know, started drinking more water. I X, Y, Z, I've lost 20 pounds. Like I didn't tell them to do any of that. It was just, they walked into this place, kind of got the vibe of what's going on. We ask questions in history about, are you a healthy person? They quickly understand without me having to berate them. There's other aspects to why you may have neck pain. And then pretty soon it's like, I'm not the parent that's like, do X, Y, Z to get better. They just understand like, oh, there's a difference between unhealthy and healthy. And pain's one of those unhealthy aspects. And then talking about like a new perspective on health, like, I have a kid. I mean, so does Brett. But when you look at the two biggest populations or subsets of population in the U.S. right now, it's baby boomers and children, right? It's always children, right? That's always been the biggest. Uh, but then you look at the two most unhealthy subsets of populations, the exact same. And that's a really scary thing to think about that makes sense why baby boomers were, right? We had a huge education gap of healthcare and diet and movement. But then we got kids, that are our kids and baby boomers kids, which are technically us, and we're seeing the perpetuation of the same model, probably even worse. And then something like COVID comes about and then we see it absolutely just, you know, drop an H-bomb in the middle of that thing. So that's where I kind of get ultra motivated to think like, my goal isn't to change every child's life, but it's like, if somebody walks in my office, they may have kids. Again, I have to open up Pandora's box of health, not back pain. And that's literally what we talk about all the time. That like, your goal is not to get somebody out of pain, not to get them moving better. It's to get them to understand what health is, right? And that's, I just think pain's an aspect of that. And we're, it's a portal of entry, right? That's our portal of entry is that thing and use it, which gets me to a good wrap up point. Be fucking good at your job. So you get buy-in, you actually have results. And then they may want to do that other stuff. Cause if you don't get somebody out of pain and that's the reason they came to see you, 
they're never going to change their diet. They're never going to do anything because they, they think that A, the thing that they needed to change the most, that's a catalyst for other things, right? It's a multiplier effect to get out of pain, allows you to have more energy to exercise or to do whatever didn't occur. And then you're, you know, they're off to the next person or you were the last person, right? We're always the fifth, sixth, seventh doctor for whatever reason. And how devastating would it be if you're the last person in that chain that you've heard all these great things about and you're just kind of ho-hum. Like that's where I get motivated. Like, damn, I better, I better be really good. Or also like to answer your question directly, especially like in my area, like you can be a role model. You know, like every day, everybody knows I'm gonna be working out at lunch. I'm gonna be, they all joke about my diet. I, I I mean, close to perfect as you're going to get. Like, I, I have to be a role model for, like, the people in my community that, like, we exercise, we, um, you know, we move our bodies. Uh, every Tuesday and Thursday morning, I'm going to be on my bike at 5 o'clock in the morning. Like, that's what healthy people do. And, like, some of your patients think you're crazy. But, like, if you can, like, give them that, you know, like, damn, Brett's on his bike again with a light on his helmet. Like, that's what healthy people do. You know, like, I think that that helps. And that's, like... You know, as a student, of course, you drink too much, you're, you're stressed, so you're eating, you know, it's just, it's a different time of your life. But then when you start your practice, you can start to clean some stuff up and kind of like work on, you know, like you kind of think about like people are like looking up to you like for health. You know, if you're out smoking a cigarette and you're, you know, you're 200 pounds overweight and things like that, it's going to be hard for you to, to roll with your health message there, you know, so. 100%. And we're going to roll with our health message after that one, which means we're probably going to go have a few drinks, which social interaction is a huge part of health. So that's what we're going to do. Tonight, right? um, appreciate you guys listening. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast. This is like the f- probably the fifth time you've been on the fourth different podcast. So I think I have a little ADHD with podcasts, but we'll talk about that another time. Thanks, man. Yeah.